0: It is I, your exhausted, yet still gracious host, Caitlin. If this is your first time listening, welcome. I welcome you with open, short, stumpy arms. That's my mom. If you listened before, thank you for coming back and sticking with me. Um I hope everyone has been having a great week. I'm still going through the typical struggle looking for a job um, and or internship, trying to get my business off the ground, finding somewhere to move because Louisiana is a butthole of a state. Um, so yeah, I hope you have all been having a great, fantastic, bitchin', poppin' week. As usual, I waited to the last minute to record the episode. I just finished doing research last night, and by research, I mean... You know what? I'm not even going to say it because y'all are going to be like, she doesn't care about this. Let's stop listening. But I do care. I'm just... ugh. Anyways, we are going to get into our recipe this week. <clears throat> well, is it really a recipe? I guess it is. And it's going to be um a full English breakfast. And this is an honor Of the wonderful, talented, amazing, beautiful Tom Hardy. Because our episode this week is based off of criminals who he has portrayed in movies. Exciting. So. A full English breakfast. A full English breakfast. mm, It typically includes bacon. Okay. Sausages. Ew. Eggs. Okay black pudding if you are wondering what black pudding is ugh, it's um it's a type of blood sausage which ugh, yuck i hate that shit we have um <clears throat> in louisiana if you've never had boudin that's unfortunate for you um we have regular boudin and we have blood boudin Blah, disgusting anyway black pudding baked beans, tomatoes, and mushrooms, and then a beverage such as coffee or tea. So you have all this, th- like this is the most random, the most random shit to put together for breakfast. I told this girl I'm recording and she's literally yelling in the other room at her dog. So if y'all can hear my sister at some point throughout this, um, let me know so I can go dropkick her. Anyways, but yeah, that is your traditional English breakfast. Baked beans for breakfast. I know that they eat, like, beans on toast. What's the infatuation with baked beans if anyone is from somewhere where, um, I guess y'all eat baked beans on toast or eat baked beans for breakfast, which we normally only have them with barbecue, but... I mean, cultural whatever. So if you're from somewhere that eats baked beans like that, email me cuz I'm I'd like to know more. I'd like to know more. So <clears throat> we are going to get into our first case, which is not so much um it's actually not so much a case. You'll I'll, I'll talk more about it. <clears throat> the Bondurant brothers. Is who the first story is going to be about. Ooh. Um, from oldest to youngest, they are Howard, Forrest, and Jack. <clears throat> During the bro- Prohibition, the brothers ran their own illegal moonshine business. To cover up their moonshine business, the brothers used their gas station and restaurant as a front. Now, the story can be read in full um, in the book, The Wettest County in the World, by Matt Bondurant, who is the grandson of Jack Bondurant. I really could not find any information about the brothers or their business or I guess because it happened so long ago or whatever. I couldn't even find the goddamn spark notes for the book. But since Lawless is the movie starring Tom Hardy and Shia LaBeouf, it's the film adaptation of that book. And, like I said, this week is Criminals portrayed by Tom Hardy. We're going to go off the events um, that happened in the movie, even though some of them were dramatized. Um, I read that in an interview with Matt Bondurant that um, some of the things were dramatized. Which, of course, because it's a movie and it's a Hollywood movie at that. Of course, they're going to add, you know, some flair into it. So... The three brothers were bootleggers in Virginia in 1931 during the prohibition. Now, law enforcement knows that they have a bootlegging business and they try to shut the brothers down. Not because they're doing something illegal, but because they refuse to pay off the dirty cops. You know, they're like, oh, you just slide some cash and we'll look the other way while you're running your illegal operations. And um, the Bondurant brothers were like, no, like, I, I worked hard for this illegal cash, and if you think I'm about to pay you off, you got another thing coming, and then the two older brothers were so, like, ruthless, I know you're not about to come in here, (sighs) so like I was saying, the brothers were basically so ruthless. Like, they portrayed the um, oldest brother, Howard. I think he was actually like this to some extent, as, like, um, just very violent. Like, there's one scene in the movie where the sheriff comes and he talks to Forrest. And Hor- Forrest is like, oh, have have you met Howard Power comes storming out of the restaurant, like, jumps off the, um, off the steps of the porch and just starts viciously just, like, beating the shit out of the sheriff and, I guess, like, his little deputy or whatever. So, basically, they could say no to these dirty cops because they're, like, not to be fucked with. So, the brothers are making their moonshine out in the forest using, um... Like, stills and bathtubs and shit like that. And then they have a friend named Cricket, who's an engineer, but he's also disabled. Um, I, they didn't say exactly what was wrong with him, and I don't really remember from the movie. But I just remember him having some sort of disability. So one day there's a new U.S. marshal. His name is Rakes. Um, He shows up in town, and he goes to pay the Bonnarod brothers a visit, along with the sheriff. So, he tells them again, he's like, I want to cut from every bootlegger in the area in order to continue ignoring y'all illegal operations. And, again, Forrest is like, um, er, let's let's slow your roll there, um, Chief. Once again, I'm not paying you any of my hard-earned bootlegging money. You know, we go out into the forest. We make this, um, Moonshine is very dangerous to make, uh... I think you could end up like combusting or blowing up or there's some kind of explosion involved. So it's dangerous. They're doing this out in the forest. They're running the liquor across county lines. And forest is basically like, no. And he's the brains of the operation. So basically what he says goes. And if you cross him then there's Howard who's the muscle who like I said jumped off the porch steps earlier and basically kicked the sheriff's face in so he obviously doesn't give a fuck who he has to you know stomp out to get get done what he needs to get done so there's other bootleggers in the area I don't think they're as popular or as um are thriving as much as the Bondi brothers and Forrest. You know, he tries to unite the other bootleggers kind of like a union, like a union strike. And he's like, we have to unite against Rakes and the sheriff, but they're afraid for whatever reason because there's way more of them than there is of law enforcement. So in the midst of all this, Jack, the youngest brother, who is the grandfather of the author of this book, has his eye on um, Miss Bertha. Yes, honey, Miss Bertha, what a name. And she is the daughter of a local preacher, which exact, like, of course, the like local, you know, bootlegger. Of course he falls in love with the preacher's daughter. Like, so she becomes interested in him. Um, he shows up drunk to her father's church one day during service and is really just acting the fool. But she's not put off by this. She's like, oh my god, how cute and charming of him. You know, she just kind of takes the tomfoolery in stride. And they eventually strike up a little a romance. And her father was, you know, like, um, you know, come on, you're the preacher's daughter. I'm a preacher. Jack's a bootlegger. So what what that what the hell, man? I'm sure he would have preferred if she married, like, a nice, boring church boy or something, but that is not the way the cookie crumbled, Henny. So one day, Jack shows up to Cricket's house because they're, they're like, good friends, and, um, U.S. Marshal Rakes is there, and he and his gang just beat, just, like, beat the shit out of Jack, and they, they really fuck him up. Um, he has, like, um, when his eyes is all bloody, like, his face is all swollen and bruised and shit, he's They fucked them up good. Um, They sent him home to his brothers as a message, like, as a warning. Like, if you don't pay us, this is what's going to happen, whatever, whatever. And Forrest, Forrest, I'll tell you right now, Forrest does not give a fuck. He's not afraid. If anything, he's more pissed off that they beat up his little brother. Howard is damn sure not afraid. Um, But we'll talk about that more in a minute. So there's a girl named Maggie. She has been hired as a waitress in the restaurant. And she was described as different from everyone else in the area, whatever that means. In the movie, <clears throat> they, um, they say that she's from Chicago. Just to kind of prove or, or give you something to go off of. To show you, like, oh, hey, she really is different from everyone else around here. Although in real life, she's not. She was not from Chicago. Um, they say she used to be a dancer, but I'm not. Sure, how true that is. So, Forrest is the one who hires her, and you kind of get the feeling that even though he doesn't really want to get attached to her, he kind of does anyway. So, one night there's some customers who are just harassing her, just generally being dicks. <coughs> so, Forrest, um, you know, as as he does, he beats he beats the shit out of those two guys and kicks them out of the restaurant. Now, before I go any further. I just want to say that there's this sort of legend, almost, that Forrest Bonnerant was unkillable, like, invincible, because these things had happened to him, and um, he survived, so that's relevant to later on. Anywho, Maggie quits. She's like, fuck this, fuck these guys, fuck Virginia, I'm gonna go back to um, Chicago. So she quits, and then the same guys who got ate up earlier that day returned that night after Maggie quit. And Forrest is there, um, and they ambush him, and they slit his throat. Now Maggie has come back to see Forrest. The men see her. They beat her up, and then they rape her. So Maggie's been assaulted. Forrest's throat is cut from ear to ear, and the men leave him for dead. <clears throat> Now, Forrest being Forrest, the invincible, unkillable man, even though his throat is slit all the way across, he starts to crawl through the snow towards the hospital to get help, towards a road. He goes wherever he's going with his cut open throat. Um, I don't think he remembered it at the time, but even though Mackie was um, in pretty bad condition herself, she put him in the truck and took him to the hospital. And he had something like 27 stitches put in his throat. And he survived. So while he was in the hospital, um, which I'm pretty sure it was a, a longer period of time because... I mean, you got your throat slit. I'm not sure exactly the recovery time on that. But while he's in the hospital... Jack Jack decides that he and Cricket are going to cross the county line to sell the rest of the moonshine. They're ambushed by mobsters, but are then spared when they find out what family he's from. Because, I mean, nobody really wants any smoke from the Bondurants. So they share their admiration with him towards, you know, um the brothers, for standing up to the, um, Marshall Rakes, and then they gave him the address to the two dickweeds that slit his brother's throat. So the monsters are here to basically spill all the tea, bitch, and I'm here for it. They wanted no smoke from the Bonarins, as did most other people, did not want the smoke either. And they snitched, and as it turned out, the two men who attacked Forrest were fir- former employees of the mobsters who now work for the U.S. Marshal. So they quit the mobsters and went to work for Rakes, who is a giant piece of shit. So once force is recovered, he and Howard find these two men and kill them. Um, they allegedly cut off one of the men's testicles and send it to Rakes in a jar of moonshine but i don't think the author i don't think his grandfather ever really talked about it because um he didn't really go how do i wanna say this he didn't really he didn't really elaborate on his level of involvement with these things that went on and the family kind of find found out through bits and pieces of newspaper articles and things like that so This may or may not have happened. So, the brothers have expanded their operation with multiple large stills deep in the woods, um, increasing their profitability. Jack continues to court Bertha. Maggie decides to return to Chicago, but Forrest is like, no, stay. Like, have a spare room. You can stay there. And she does. And they eventually develop a romantic relationship. Now, on a day trip, Jack decides he wants to show Bertha, the brothers, you know, their stills and things out in the forest. Of course, they're followed and ambushed by Rakes and his men. Howard and Jack um, get away, but Cricket and Bertha are caught. The police, because she's a preacher's daughter, take um, Bertha home. But they leave Cricket and Rakes murders him. Um, which is very sad and kind of caused the brothers to be like looking, looking to get revenge because I mean, he was a very close friend of theirs and he did engineer things for them. So at Cricket's funeral, the sheriff of Franklin County warns the Bondurans that Rakes and his men are blockading the bridge out of town. So there are, um, Calling in prohibition agents to shut down the county's moonshine businesses. Okay, this is the sheriff warning them. So Jack speeds off in Cricket's car to confront Rakes because he's like, you killed my friend. Fuck you. So Howard and Forrest quickly follow to provide backup because that's what real ones do. And Maggie's not happy about this because she's like, you already got your throat slit. Like, can we please relax? Can we dial it back a little bit? So she reveals that she had delivered Forrest to the hospital after the attack, <clears throat> and Forrest kind of figures out that she had been assaulted after that. So Jack arrives at the bridge, but is wounded by Rakes, because, I mean, Jack is not really the brains or the brawn of this operation, he's kind of more the lookout, he's just there, <sighs> I guess that's an extra set of hands, because he he's not, you know, he, he's kind of just a weenie. So Howard and Forrest arrive, and there's a shootout, like a western, during which Forrest and his driver are also wounded with the latter. The driver died of his injuries. So um, shootout's happening. A bunch of bootleggers show up, and they hold the the feds at gunpoint. So Rakes is like, you know what? Fuck you guys. Um, I've had enough of these brothers and I've had enough of all you bootleggers. So he attempts to execute Forrest. I want to say he shot him like sometimes, like more than once in the chest. But the sheriff shot um, Rakes in the leg to try to stop all the bloodshed because he knows the bootleggers aren't going to back down. So Rakes turns to try to flee the scene, but turns around and shoots Forrest several times. So, all the other bootleggers who were there, you know, united basically because of Forrest. They open fire on him, but he runs into a tunnel. So, he can't run far because, um... I mean, <laughs> he did get shot in the leg. Jack, even though he's, like, really wounded, and Howard, chase after him. And they they kill him, execution style. Because, this, I mean... They can only fuck with his brother, with their brother so many times. So, that's the second attempt. Um, So, Forrest, who was played by Tom Hardy in the movie, has had his throat slit already. Stitched back up with however many stitches. Throat slit, okay? He's been shot several times. He survives. So, at the end of Prohibition in 1933... Um, the sheriff is arrested on corruption charges, of course. And the Bondarants all end up married. So Jack and Bertha got married, Forrest and Maggie got um, married, and Howard got married to some lady who's, I guess, not really relevant. And they're all working in legitimate jobs now, even though being a bootlegger sounds so much more fun. Well, I'm sure getting shot in your throat slit is not great, but... So they were having a reunion of sorts at Jack's house sometime later, you know, some years later. And Forrest, um, he's drunk, he goes over to a frozen lake, and he falls into the water. And even though he gets out, he later gets pneumonia and dies, and that is what killed the legend of Him being unkillable and invincible, which is just so ironic. Because you've survived being shot multiple times. You have survived your throat being slit. And here, you die of pneumonia. It's just crazy. Anyways, here's a message from our sponsors. Boom. Let's get into our next story. Which is also... Both these movies are on Netflix, by the way. The first one was called Lawless, if you hadn't heard. And this one is called Legend. And it's based on the Cray Twins. And Tom Hardy plays both of them, which is great. Because they're really like night and day. Two completely different characters. And he's so great in this movie. And it's, it's some crazy shit. Some real crazy shit. So, um... <clears throat> Their real names are Ronald and Reginald, but who has time for all that prim proper shit? Ron and Reggie Cray were born October 24th, 1933. Their birthday is 2 days before mine and that is so cool. In Hagerston, East London, t- and their dad was Charles David Cray and their mother is Violet Annie Lee, which is not really relevant. Um The brothers were twins, with Reggie being born ten minutes before Ronnie. You can kind of tell that he was the older one just because of the kind of responsibility that he like takes on. This is random, but when they were three years old they contracted diphtheria. I don't I don't really know how diphtheria works, but for them to both contract it at the same time, I mean how do you even get such a thing? Anyways, they were very influenced by their maternal grandfather, who Jimmy Cannonball Lee, and um, he he influenced them to take up boxing, and this was a really popular pastime around that time for working class boys in East End, and they both got kind of successful, like they were both almost professional boxers, but since they were had such bad behavior and criminal records and shit like that. Um, that kind of put it into that. So they were called to do national service in the British Army in March 1952, <laughs> which is so funny because they are like the furthest thing, the furthest kind of person that you would want to be in the army because they they don't respect authority. They want to do what they want to do. They're violent, aggressive. So, although they reported to the depot of the Royal Fus- Fusiliers, Fusiliers—I don't know—at the Tower of London, they attempted to leave after only a few minutes. When the corporal in charge tried to stop them, he was seriously injured by Ronnie Cray, who punched him in the jaw. Let me just note this: that Ronnie had this thing—not Ronnie, Reggie—had this thing uh, about punching people in the jaw. He would offer them a cigarette. And then offer to light it for them. And kind of while their mouth was open. Because he wouldn't hand them the cigarette. He would put it out for them to take in their mouth from his hand. And as they were going to take it. He would punch them in the jaw. And most likely break their jaw. Because of the positioning of their mouth. So the craze. After they um, basically rejected their um, service to the military. And assaulted a corporal. They walk back to their East End home. And they are arrested the next morning by the police and turned over to the army. So in September, they're AWOL again. And they assault a police constable who tried to arrest them. And they become among the last prisoners to be held at the Tower of London before being transferred to um, Shepton Mallet Military Prison in Somerset for a month to await the court-martial. Now, after they were convicted, both were sent to the Buffs' home. Counties Brigade, Depot Jail, and Canterbury, Kent. There are so. <laughs> London has so many words and there are titles for things. However, when it became very clear that they were both to be dishonorably discharged from the army, their behavior became violently worse because they're like, fuck it, what do we have to lose anyways? We're both getting dishonorably discharged. We might as well really just fuck shit up. So they. Basically ruled exercise areas outside of their one-man cells. They threw tantrums. They emptied a latrine bucket over a sergeant. Blah! They dumped a canteen full of hot tea on another guard. Handcuffed a guard to their prison bars with a pair of stolen cuffs. And set their bedding on fire. So they were just wilding the fuck out. They did not care. They were on as bad behavior as they could be. So eventually... They were moved to a communal cell where they assaulted their guard with a vase and escaped. They were quickly recaptured and they spent their last night in military custody. In Canterbury, drinking cider, eating crisps, crisps and smoking cigarillos. Um, the servicemen who were their guards brought them cigarillos. So the next day, the crazes were transferred to a civilian prison to serve their sentences. For all the shit they did when they were AWOL. So their criminal records and dishonorable discharges. Like I said. Pretty much ended their boxing career. And the brothers turned to a full time life of crime. <clears throat> Which I'm sure pays better than. Um, you know a full time job of honest living. Anyway. They bought a rundown snooker club. In Milton, where they started several prote- protection rackets. This is where they got um, a lot of their money from, um, this is kind of what brought the intimidation factor. Uh, People were really, like, afraid, because they had other gangs in London and stuff, but people were afraid to uh, not be protected by them, because they themselves were scary, like. So, by the end of the 1950s, the Krays were working for Jay Murray from Liverpool, and were involved in hijackings, armed robberies, and arsons, through which they acquired other clubs and properties. In 1960, Ronnie Cray was in prison for 18 months for running a protection racket and related threats. While Ronnie was in prison, Peter Rashman, he was a landlord, um, he was the head of a landlord operation. He gave, gave... Reggie at nightclub called Esmeralda's Barn, and I don't know if he really gave it to him out of the kindness of his heart or if he gave it to him out of like intimidation. So, of course, this increased the craze um, influence on the West End by making them celebrities. Like, you're just cool as fuck. You know, uh, everybody wants to be around a bad boy without actually having to be involved in the crime. So, they're criminals and they still have these very nice clubs and celebrities and people with money and people in power come to these clubs so they're criminals but they're also famous so it's like you get to rub shoulders rub no it's not rub shoulders it's rub elbows you get to rub elbows with them you know so you're getting a little taste of the criminal world while not actually being a criminal so the twins adopted a norm Which is basically, like, anyone who failed to show them respect would get punished. And by that, they probably, you know, beat them up. So they were assisted by a banker named Alan Cooper, who wanted protection against the crazed rivals, the Richardsons, based in South London. There are issues with the Richardsons. Um, If you watch the movie, you will see there's a bar fight between them. They just... Them and the Richardsons are like oil and water. They don't mix boo. So in the 1960s, the um, Cray brothers were seen as prosperous and charming celebrity nightclub owners and were part of the quote-unquote swinging London scene. A large part of their fame was due to their non-criminal activities as popular figures on the celebrity circuit. So your photograph with David Bailey, I have no idea who that is on more than one occasion, and socializing with lords, socialites, and show business characters, including George Raff, Judy Garland, or uh, Dorothy, Diana Doors, and Barbara Windsor. They also came to public attention in 1964 when there was an expose in a tabloid um, that insinuated that Ronnie had had a sexual relationship with Lord Boothby, was a conservative politician um and this is a time of course when sex between two men was a criminal offense so there were no names printed in this piece um the twins still threatened the journalists who wrote it or who were involved and boothby threatened to sue the newspaper with the help of the labor party so, you know, the labor party wanted to protect their um their reputation because there was a um an election coming up and they they really wanted to win. So, in the face of this, the newspaper backed down because you know, they don't really want the smoke from either side. So, they fired the editor, they printed an apology, and they paid Lord Boothby 40,000 euros in an out-of-court settlement. Now, because of this, other newspapers were just unwilling to publish um, anything about connections to the craze and their criminal activities. Now, much later, Channel 4 established the truth of the allegations and released a documentary on the subject called The Gangster and the Pervert Peer in 2009. <laughs> The police investigated the craze on several occasions. You see at the beginning of the film that they know they are being followed. Um, Reggie knows he's being followed. He walks up to the cops. He talks to them whenever he goes places. He'll walk on purpose just because he knows they're following him and to make it as difficult as on them as he possibly can. He offers them tea when they're sitting in their, um, in their police car. Like, he knows. So the brothers have this reputation for violence. And it basically was an intimidation factor. So whenever people would witness their crimes, they they know. They're like, the crazes are very violent. They will curb stomp me. They'll stab me, cut me, break a bottle over my head, shoot me, beat me up. So they're afraid to testify. They're like, what about my kids? You know, what about my well-being? There was also the problem that um, for both political parties that the conservative press um, was unwilling to police the Curry's power because they didn't want Ronnie's connection to Lord Boothby to be publicized or brought up again. And the Labor Party, who was in power, had a wafer-thin majority in the House of Commons. And they didn't want another general election, um, with a ge- another general election so close, they didn't want their connections to Ronnie Cray to get into the public either. So, um, what they did in the film is these public figures would come to their parties or whatever, and they take pictures with them. You know, they they'd surprise, sneak up on them, take a picture with them. And then they basically have to keep their mouth shut and they can be blackmailed with this photograph because, you know, they don't want to be caught or seen um, rendezvousing with gangsters or people who are involved in this criminal activity. So what was kind of the, you know, the first downfall brought on by Ronnie Craze where he shot and killed. George Carnell, he was a member of the, their rival gang, the Richardson Gang, at the Blind Beggar Pub on March 9th, 1966. Now, the day before, there was a shootout at a nightclub in Catford involving the Richardson Gang, um, and Richard Hart, who was a, an associate of the Craze, he was shot dead. Now, this shootout, which was very public, led to the arrest of nearly all of the Richardson gang. And George Cornell just happened to not be there um, during the shootout, and he wasn't arrested. Which, I mean, maybe if he would have been, things would have turned out differently. But um, he was at the hospital visiting one of his friends, and he just chose to go to the Blind Baker Pub, which was a mile away from where the craze lived. So, you know, he's in the East End. Which is pretty much their their territory. Now Ronnie was at another pub drinking whenever he learned that George Cornell was in his hood. So he went there with his driver, Scotch Jack John Dixon, and his assistant Ian Barry. Ronnie went into the pub with Barry, walked straight to Cornell, and shot him in the head in public view, honey. There was like a room with seven people in it. And he walks up to this man and shot him in the head. Now, you know, Ian Barry, his assistant, is like, what the fuck? He fired five shots into the air just to <laughs> kind of take um take the attention off of what just happened. And he tells the public, don't report what you saw to the cops. Now, just before he was shot, George Cornell said, oh, well, something along the lines of, oh, Look what the cat dragged in, and he died at three a.m. in the hospital. So, there's just a note that Ronnie Cray was already really, really suffering from paranoid schizophrenia at the time of the killing. Not to justify it, just to let you know that he he really was not well. Um, he actually later gets certified as clinically insane. But he does have some mental things going on. So according to some sources. Ronnie killed George Cornell. Because Cornell referred to him as a fat poof. Which I guess it's like saying. The F word. Um, F asterisk. G-G-O-T. You know. It's just a very derogatory term for gay men. During a confrontation between the crazes. And the Richardson gang at this club on Christmas. So, um, not that he was, that he really tried to hide his sexuality in any way. But, like I said, this is a man with, with a lot of issues. So it'd probably be in your best interest not to, um, not to insult him. So then, here's Reggie's downfall. With Jack the Hat McVitie. Now, even though, you know, the twins' criminal activity was kind of hidden behind, not only their celebrity status, but their legitimate businesses. Um, they still, you know, they still did some real hood-ass, gutter-ass shit. So Reggie was apparently encouraged to kill by his brother in October of 1967, four months after the suicide of his wife, Frances. I'm talking about Francis a little bit. Um, in the movie, it's her brother that they work with. But in real life, it was her dad, Frank. And that is how the boys knew her. So she was 16 whenever they first, um, she and Reggie first met. And um, when she turned 18, he Reggie proposed to her. And she was like, um, no. Like, I'm too young to get married. It's not really my thing. Like, mm, no. So, um... I actually feel really bad for Francis Because I I don't know if, um... You know, everything in the movie was true or, or... if things actually really happened like that, like in the movie, she she really felt like um, Ronnie did not like her, and I guess he kind of felt that she was pulling his brother away from him. Um, she she didn't like the whole gangland life of crime scene. When she was eighteen, he proposed to her, and she's like, "No." So then a year after that, he took her to Barcelona and then to Milan. And then in February, he proposed to her again and she accepted this time. Which I can't even lie. If he just took me to Barcelona and Milan, I'd have asked him to marry me. So they asked a first priest to go ahead and officiate their wedding. And he was like, uh, no. And I don't know if it was a religion thing or... He was just like, you're a violent criminal. Like, I'm, I'm going to just pass on that one. I'm going to post pictures of her. She's actually so adorable. So they spent their honeymoon in Athens, Greece. Two months after the marriage, Francis left Reggie and went to back to live with her parents. So a month after that, she attempted suicide by taking an overdose of barbiturates. Um... On this occasion and on one occasion after that, she was revived. However, in June of 1967, she actually did kill herself with sleeping pills two years after their wedding. And she died at 23 years old, which is very, very sad. And they do emphasize this a lot in the movies, empty or she feels empty or whatever. And at first, I was like, well, maybe I feel like, you know, the girl who played her didn't do such a hot job because... Her character is very boring and very flat and two-dimensional. But now, I guess once you you come to terms with the fact that maybe she was this empty person who was like depressed and sad all the time, maybe this is actually what she was like. Maybe that sadness was making her um, very two-dimensional and maybe she actually did a great job of playing her. Because this is what it's supposed to be like So I think, I think it's that Anyways, Frances was Very pampered But she was also um, Reggie was also Controlling and possessive over her He was Obsessed with trying to get her back But she hated it, she hated You know, the drugs The protection rackets, the possibility That he could go to jail at any moment her parents told Reggie that their daughter's last wish had been to go back to her maiden name. Like she wanted to be Frances Shea again and not Frances Cray. But he insisted that she be bar- uh, buried under her maiden name and wear her white satin and wedding dress. Um, however, Frances' mom did go to the, um, the undertaker to put a tights and a slip. On Francis's body, so you know her body wouldn't have to touch that much of the wedding dress. So before he got arrested, Reggie visited Francis's grave a lot. He would sometimes go several times a day, and then um, six months before his own death, when he was let out of prison to go to his brother's funeral, his brother Charlie, which there is another brother, he's not a twin though, and. He gets in much less trouble. So he isn't really mentioned. You, um There's a picture of him kissing. Francis's tombstone. Which is very sad. I will post pictures of her. Because she's just. She's just. The cutest. And she was cute in the movie. And he was cute in the movie. Because. You know. It's Tom Hardy. But in real life. Mm-mm. Not at all. That ain't it, Chief. After Francis dies, Ronnie is like egging Reggie on to go ahead and kill Jack the Hat, who always has on this ugly like fedora. And he's not really relevant to their gang. But he fulfilled uh, (laughs) a. Why can't I talk? He failed to fulfill a contract that they had. It was um, for a thousand euros. So he got 500 euros already in advance to kill their financial advisor, Leslie Payne. Now, McVitie was lured into the basement. was lured into the basement um, on the pretense of a party. So they were like, oh, come down here with us. You no, know, get a little party on. Mm-mm. So he, he entered the premises. He saw ronnie in the front room and as ronnie approached him he started verbally abusing him he cut him under the eye with a piece of broken glass which where did he get a piece of broken glass from in the living room and it's believed that argument oh geez here we go so there is this um big argument and i want to say Jack. Um, it's probably on drugs, and, and one of the, one of the gang members does say this later on, that Jack the Hat was, like, a bad person, and he, he threatened, um, Ronnie and Reggie multiple times, and threatened their family, and he did drugs, and this and that, and in the movie, he does kind of, uh, egg Reggie on, like, oh, go ahead and shoot me because um, he's talking about Francis he's like, I don't know why you're so mad at me. it's not my fault. Francis killed herself. and Reggie's like, if you say her name again, I'm gonna shoot you. And what does Jack do? says her name again. So he points um, a handgun at Jack the Hat's head and pulled the trigger twice and the gun failed to discharge. So then uh, the twin's cousin, whose name is also Ronnie, Ronnie Hart, basically grabs jack gets him in a bear hug and somebody handed reggie a carving knife and then he stabbed jack the hat so many times in the face in the stomach into his neck he twisted the knife in his neck and he didn't stop even when jack was on the floor dying he did this in public um and a bunch of the members of his gang felt like Jack didn't deserve to die. But I I guess Reggie just had so much rage pent up in him. So, after Reggie's death, Freddie Foreman said that Jack uh, McVitie had a reputation for leaving carnage behind him due to his habitual consumption of drugs and heavy drinking, and his having in the past threatened to harm the twins or their family. So, they basically merc this dude um the gang helps clean up the body they get rid of it but the twins still so end up in trouble um detective superintendent oh lord this long ass name Detective Chief Superintendent Leonard, Leonard Nipper Reed oh, of Scotland Yard was promoted to the murder squad. And his first assignment was to bring the craze down. Now, it was not his first um, case involvement with them. During 1964, he had been investigating their activities. But, you know, all the things with the Lords and Ronnie's relationships and Boothby and all that. It was... um. It, it was kind of brought to a screeching halt. But by the end of 1967, Reed had built up enough evidence against the craze. Um, the witness statements, people were finally being like, fuck this, like, I'm not afraid, whatever. Um, their witness statements were very incriminating. And there was other evidence that was making that, despite that, they still had a hard time coming up with like a solid case on one single charge eventually, Scotland Yard decided to arrest the Craze on the evidence that they already had and hoped that there were like other witnesses would come forward once the Craze were in custody. You know, they didn't have the option or the, um, the threat that they'd be looming around. Oh, did you go talk to the cops? Let me like break your kneecaps or whatever. So on May 8th, the Craze and 15 other members of their gang were arrested Ooh, exceptional circumstances were put in place to stop possible cooperation between any of the accused. Now, Nipper Reed secretly interviewed each of the arrested and offered each member of the firm a deal if they testified against the others. So while they were in prison, the crazes came up with a plan to have Scotch Jack confess to the murder of George Cornell, Ronnie Hart, who was their cousin, to confess to Jack the Hat, and Albert Donahue, which somebody else, admit to killing this other guy that they killed. They helped to get him out of prison, and let him stay at a friend's house, and then he ended up disappearing. So I don't know if they got tired of him and killed him or what. So this Donahue person told the twins that he's like, I'm not ready to, you know, get bullied into pleading guilty for a murder. And the twins, of course, are pissed. So then he informs Reed that um. He's ready to cooperate. So he set up a secret interview. And Albert Donahue was the first one to just sing like a canary. Maybe he told it all. Even though Reed knows for a fact that uh, Ronnie murdered George Carnell, no one wanted to testify against the twins because they were terrified. So upon finding out that the twins were going to, you know, place the blame on him, Scotch Jack. Turned in everything that he knew about Cornell's murder, and even though it wasn't a, he wasn't a witness, he was an exe- an accessory to murder because he drove Ronnie and Ian Barry to the pub, and the police still needed an actual witness to the murder. So they managed to track down the barmaid who was working in the pub that night, and she testified to seeing Ronnie kill Cornell. She didn't give a fuck. She's like they're in prison now, like. Pfft. So the twins' defense. Consisted of basically them just denying it and discrediting witnesses by pointing out their criminal past. Despite this, both were sentenced to life imprisonment with a non parole period of 30 years for the murders of Cornell and Jack the Hat. And this was the longest sentence ever passed at the Old Bailey Central Criminal Court, London, for murder. Now, their older brother, Charlie, was also imprisoned for 10 years for his part in the murder. Now, later, much later in life, Ronnie and Reggie were allowed, um, along with very heavy surveillance, to attend their mother's funeral. She had died from cancer, a week earlier. Um, they weren't allowed to go to their her burial, and then actual celebrities attended the mother's funeral like diana doors uh, and then like some underworld figures and then they didn't really want that same publicity that they had for their mother's funeral so they didn't go to their fa- father's funeral narani was a category a prisoner and he was denied pretty much any- anything that you could have had the opportunity to he got denied and he wasn't allowed to mix with other prisoners he was eventually certified insane his paranoid schizophrenia had to be managed kind of with constant medication in 1979 he was committed and he lived the rest of his life in Broadmoor, Broadmoor Hospital in Crowthorne, Berkshire Reggie Cray was also constantly refused parole and was locked up in Maidstone Prison for 8 years which is a Category B prison in 1997 he was transferred to Category C in Wayland ugh, Wayland Prison in Norfolk now, Ronnie had written a book called My Story. Ronnie said that he was bisexual, not gay. Bisexual. And he wasn't, like, ashamed uh, about his sexuality. He was pretty open about it. In the 1960s, he actually wanted to marry a woman named Monica who had dated for about three years. And he called her the most beautiful woman he had ever seen. Now, this was also mentioned in Reggie's book, Born Fighter. Um, <laughs> Ronnie was arrested before he he got to marry this woman. And even though she married, no, she married his ex boyfriend. That's crazy. <laughs> Fifty nine letters sent her between May and December nineteen sixty eight, when he was in prison, show that Ronnie still had feelings for her. At all and his love for her was very clear. Um, he refers to her as my little angel and my little doll and she also still had feelings for him even though she married his ex boy he wrote a letter to his mom at one point when he was in prison and talks about monica and says if they let me see monica and put me with reg i could not ask for more he went on to say without spelling mistakes monica's the only girl i've liked in my life she's a lovely little person as you know when you see her tell i'm in love with her more than ever. oh. Ronnie married twice after that. Marrying Elaine Mildener in 1985 at a Broadmoor Chapel before they divorced in 1989. Following which he married Kate Howard, whom he divorced in 1994. So, sad I was really rooting for him and Monica. Um, Reddy, like I said earlier, married Frances Shea, who died by suicide two years later. And then married Roberta Jones, who he met while still in prison. And she was working to help publicize a movie made about him, which is just wild. But they both ended up, um, I want to say Ronnie ended up dying of a heart attack in 1995. And then Reggie ended up dying in 2000. So they have both since passed away. That that, I mean, that's the story of the Grey Twins. Anyway, I'll try to be better and not do the shit at the last minute anymore. That was our episode for this week. We have new episodes out every Friday at 12 a.m. Central Time. Recipes will be most likely posted Friday on Instagram. If you like this episode, feel free to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or on iTunes. It's the best way to help get the word out about the show. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook at With a Side of Crime. It's the same handle on both. Um, If you'd like to become a Patreon member, you can visit patreon.com slash With a Side of Crime, where you have access to exclusive content. Thank you very much for listening to With a Side of Crime. I'm Caitlin Darby. Good night.